our trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program for people who are okay with the idea that truth isn't something handed to you by someone in authority. Unfortunately, that's going to exclude a lot of people in the political class and also a lot of uh, members of the legacy media who apparently have a pretty authoritarian slant in the way they see the world. Well, if it didn't come from an official source, then if it's not uh, done through official, you know, corporate media, why, it just can't be true. I disagree with that. And I'm guessing you probably do at some level or you wouldn't be listening to this program. By the way, I have some great sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis. They include garagedoorproservices.com, lifesavingfood.com, monticellocollege.org, and hslammo.com. Got a link in my show notes where you can go right to each one of these sponsors. I hope you'll take the time to get to know them and even do business with them. Well, keeping in mind that truth isn't something that's handed to you by someone in authority, someone in a lab coat, someone in a uniform, in a three-piece suit or whatever, I think we have some pretty solid examples over the last couple of years, from COVID lockdowns to politically motivated FBI raids. We have reasons to doubt what those in authority are telling us. In fact, I've got a great article here from Jeff Deist from the Mises Institute. It's just simply titled, We Don't Believe You. He says, this should be our default setting anytime someone official tells us, hey, this is the way it is. So I want to start with a, a quote that uh, Jeff Deist uses in his article. And it's from David French, who he says is maybe National Review's most reliably wrong scribe. But this is a tweet he sent out in response to the FBI raid on Donald Trump's residence in Florida. David French said, Given that we haven't, we still haven't seen the warrant, much less the warrant application, the immediate frenzied anger at the FBI is completely unjustified. There is no constitutional, statutory, or moral foundation for the belief a former president is above the law. So wait. If the DOJ's actions turn out to be unjustified, then responsible officials should be held accountable. But it's wrong to presume an abuse of power. And talk of civil war is horrific, frivolous Twitter, LARPing, right until a deranged man picks up a rifle. Take a breath. Now, Jeff Deist says, imagine thinking federal police agents and lawyers will be held accountable or that presidents are not above the law. What is this, an after-school special? Let's wait and see, folks, before we judge the situation. It might be perfectly on the up and up. Have faith in the rule of law and trust the process. Now, Jeff Deist is pointing out here that French, in keeping with the listless residue of conservative ink, either can't or won't face the reality of post-Goodwill America. This starts and ends with politics. And if politics is war by other means, subterfuge is part and parcel of every battle and skirmish in that war. We're not required to take a combatant's claims at face value, blundering ahead like Lucan and Cardigan at uh, Balaclava. The contrary, in fact, any political statement made today by any politician or candidate or public official can be answered thus. We don't believe you. And with this comes a corollary. We don't trust you. 
So when the left talks about banning assault rifles, for example, we all know the true ambition of the gun controllers, many of whom are honest, honest rather, and open about their desire to completely eliminate private ownership of firearms in America. Progressives apply the same lens to bans on late-term abortion, but in the Trump era, enhanced by the perverse dopamine incentives of social media, they took this belief and distrust to a new rhetorical level. Witness today's poisonous political lexicon. One that makes clear that any presumption of good intentions is gone. Insurrection, treason, racist, Nazi, fascist, domestic terrorist, maggot. These terms are not used to persuade, but to dehumanize and banish, which of course is nothing new in politics. But it's worth pointing out that the Frenchist folly of claiming that the democratic norms are poised to reassert themselves and bring us together once again, once orange man is gone. Yeah, right. He says, uh, Jeff Deist says, the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago is an obvious example of America watching two politicized movies. We're not required to judge it apart from the broader political context, like children examining a single rock. The entire event is bound up with the larger war against Trump, the one which began almost immediately after he was elected with the Russiagate campaign. Now, the goal of that ongoing war is to ruin both Trump and his family salting the earth with their populist movement of deplorables. Trump and his supporters must be destroyed politically, at the very least, ensuring Trump cannot run for president again, but also that no candidate outside the Uniparty's acceptable parameters can ever run again. So one of the most important campaigns in America's political war effectively seeks to criminalize a whole category of dissent, or at least place dissenters outside the bounds of acceptable society. Now, if you doubt any or all of the 2020 presidential election results, you are an election denier. If you protested at the Capitol, you are an insurrectionist. If you question Russian collusion, you are a Putin supporter, and so forth. Jeff Deist says, we have not seen the FBI's warrant or the supporting evidence presented to the magistrate. Was the raid an actual step toward a criminal prosecution? What were the actual crimes contemplated and the specific evidence sought? The answer is we don't know, but at this point it doesn't matter. Merrick Garland surely knew Republican partisans would view the raid as pure political harassment, a warning to Trump, his family, and close associates. Now, he also surely knew that many Democratic partisans hoped to gin up legal arguments to disqualify the former president from running again, either under the 14th Amendment or, more dubiously, under this federal statute. And, of course, he knows... A media brouhaha would ensue. So there are two broad but conflicting interpretations of Garland's actions. First, he's a brave defender of the rule of law who doggedly follows the evidence wherever it goes with no consideration for politics, appearances, or timing whatsoever. Or second, he knew exactly how ardent Trump fans would react to the warrant and seizures and actively intended this effect. In other words, he intended to send a threatening message and quell political enthusiasm for Trump 2024. Now, Jeff Deist says, look, decent people can and should resist a world organized around politics and deplore the politicized state of America. He's right about this, by the way. Ordinary Americans don't want to live political lives and have their personal and professional relationships defined by this terrible environment. But politics is interested in us, as the saying goes, so we arm ourselves with a clear-eyed worldview, put away childish things, and never accept political pronouncements at face value. We don't believe you is always 
the default position. I really like this. That spoke to me. And I know for some people it's like, well, it just sounds really cynical or like defiant or something. You're, you're just, uh, you know, pushing back against people for the sake of being a contrarian. No, I'd say we have a pretty good track record to look at. I think we have uh, ample reason to doubt what those in authority are telling us. Now, maybe it's because I focus on this stuff on a daily basis. It, it seems like it's really obvious to me. And it's not because I have super brain powers or super powers of observation even. But once you've noticed the direction that uh, the, the political class seems to want to take us, once you have noticed the weaponization of the entire political right at this point, or I should say the weaponization of the federal government against the entire political right. I don't know. There's a lot of provocation that I'm seeing on the part of those in power. And as, as cynical as this may sound, it really feels as though they're trying to push us and push us and back us into a corner, knowing that at some point we will put our foot down and say enough. And they'll take one individual who acts out violently and use that as the excuse. Well, see, this is why we have to crack down on everybody. You know, and I'm, I'm certainly not advocating violence, but I think it's, it's pretty safe to say when you, uh, when you push hard enough, there's going to be snapback. And the people whose uh, you know, lives were upended over the last couple of years told you can't show up for work, you can't open your business, you can't go visit your loved one in a nursing home, you can't even see your loved one in the hospital. Don't go have a holiday with grandma because it could be dangerous. Well, here, wear this mask, get the jab or lose your job. Yeah, all the people who were pushing those policies, all the, all the mask Karens out there. You knew there was going to be pushback at some point. And again, that's not advocating violence, but you can only push people so far before they finally say enough. Now, I think politicians understand this, and I think that they're banking on somebody somewhere is going to say enough, and they're going to put their foot down, and they're going to respond to the violence and the aggression of the state with violence. It's going to be an ugly day when that happens. But the harder they push, the more likely it is that that's going to happen. So whose fault is it, right? You keep tormenting somebody, keep teasing that dog, keep teasing, keep teasing. Hey, he bit me! We need to put this dog down right away. I honestly believe that's how a lot of politicians see us. Inconvenient dogs that need to be put down somehow. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Garage Door Pros is one of my sponsors. Maybe you caught my interview last week, or I guess it was earlier this week, with uh, Seth Schultes, who's the uh, owner of Garage Door Pros. Look, I've got a link in my show notes. I would encourage you, please click on it. Get to know them. If you live in St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, or Colorado City, Arizona, you have a wonderful resource at your disposal for both commercial as well as residential garage doors Talk to Garage Door Pros. Go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. You'll see they have quick response, faster lead time, and these were American-made garage doors. A little something you can feel proud about. Plus, they take extra good care of their customers. 
Just read those testimonials and you'll see what I'm talking about. All right, back to the show. Let's talk about the ongoing craze to sanitize everything in the name of sensitivity. I can't be the only one who feels like, you know, this is actually creating more problems than it's solving. Got a great article here from Spiked Online. This is from Joanna Williams. We need to stop rewriting songs and rewriting history. And her point here is that the desire to cleanse everything of potential offense kills creativity and it disorients society. She says, back in June, the creators of the hugely popular Stranger Things, Matt and Ross Duffer, created a stir when they stir rather when they seemed to suggest they had retrospectively re-edited episodes of the show to fix plot holes spotted by fans. We have George Lucas things that people don't know about, they later claimed in Variety, referencing the Star Wars director's habit of uh, improving editions of his films post-release. After much discussion, the writers of Stranger Things finally reassured fans no scenes from previous seasons have ever been cut or re-edited, and they never will be. Now, Joanne Williams says, Joanna Williams says, look, clearly you have to be a pretty devoted follower of a show to notice a tiny script error. And retrospectively changing a small detail in a fictional drama is hardly consequential. But the Stranger Things controversy raises interesting questions about the growing fashion for retrospective editing in response to audience reaction. See, in the old analog world of vinyl albums and paper books, up-to-the-minute re-editing was, if not impossible, then certainly very difficult. So when content is consumed digitally, it can be updated as soon as the first criticism lands. Yet just because something can be done, that does not make it right. The temptation for artists to hit the edit button is far more likely to be triggered in response to cries of offense than to mere plot holes. Here's a good example. Beyonce's first solo album in six years, Renaissance, had only been released for one week before it was updated. Now, Beyonce replaced the words spazzin' on that ass with blasted on that ass in the song Heated after disability charities claimed the offense, the lyric rather, was offensive. Singer Lizzo was equally quick to re-record a new version of her song, Girls, when just one month earlier she was accused of using the very same ableist slur. Now, Joanna Williams says, look, we can discuss the different connotations of spaz in the U.S. and the U.K. We can argue whether or not post-release editing counts as censorship. But the growing trend for memory-holding a work the minute it's labeled problematic raises broader questions about our collective grasp on present realities and our relationship with even the immediate past. She says when music, films, and books can all be altered at the push of a button, with the update replacing the original, we're left questioning our recollection of what we may have read or heard just days earlier. This process is particularly concerning when it comes to editing in response to cries of offense. Because it implies that it's not the individual artist who determines the content of their work, but the people who shout the loudest on social media. It also sets in place a trend for retrospectively editing older work, perhaps long after the death of an original creator. We see this in calls to update classic works of literature, either through modern adaptations or simply deleting offensive words from new editions. Children's literature is a particular focus for this form of revisionism. Some books have been removed from back catalogs altogether, like Dr. Seuss. In other words, in others, rather, words and names of characters have been changed, like Enid Blyton. In some cases, entire books have been rewritten. You can see Jacqueline Wilson's updating of E. Nesbitt's novels. Social attitudes change over time, 
and words that were once considered acceptable are dropped and replaced with more acceptable alternatives. But Joanna Williams says to edit past cultural works on the basis of today's values is to rewrite the historical record. It suggests the past is just a continuation of the present and that even centuries ago, people held all, held all the same progressive values that we are encouraged to hold today. She says this expunging of all reminders of a past that doesn't neatly reflect today's woke attitudes extends beyond the arts. It is there in the desire to remove statues and plaques to historical figures who were once celebrated but are now hated. It's there in campaigns to change the name of streets, schools, or buildings. Every aspect of the past, whether it dates back several centuries or a couple of days, is now interrogated, cleansed, and altered in a never-ending process of moral purification. But she says activists face a problem. This memory-holing whitewashes the past, whether it's a past, rather, whether it's a plot hole, a misinterpreted song lyric, or a statue to a slave trader turned philanthropist, past sins are removed from the historical record in line with contemporary political concerns. Yet in the process of updating, the evidence of past wrongdoing is also deleted. So it's hard for us to measure how far society has progressed when evidence of outdated values no longer exists. Those intent on decolonizing history want us to believe that just the past was irredeemably, not just that the past was irredeemably bad, but also that its sinful legacy shapes our present. And soon we may only have their word for it. Joanna Williams says the more we edit cultural artifacts in politically acceptable ways, the more tenuous our grasp on the past becomes. We're left floundering in a constantly updating present, and the campaigners want it both ways. They want to whitewash the past and at the same time claim that everything that happened before the present was terrible. They need to grow up. History is messy. It doesn't conform to the latest woke values because it's made by fallible people who are products of their time. She says we need to learn to leave the past as it is and resist this new fashion for rewriting everything. So says Joanna Williams, again writing for spikedonline.com. Now I'll have a link to this in the show notes. But this is this just really underscores that that habit that I was taught a long time ago of read old books. I think this is this is one of the best arguments for you really should have a library of sorts in your home and you should have classics. You should have old books that you can return to and read over and over again simply because there's something to learn every time that you do it. And I know how crazy it sounds to say this, but the beauty of having these old books is somebody can't go in and edit them like some Wikipedia entry. Well, we changed the definition of the word definition because uh, it's politically expedient in our time. In other words, you get to see what people actually thought about the past and you get to experience it in their own words without benefit of some helpful modern-day censor, you know, clarifying the values for us, for us, rather. I know it seems like kind of a small thing. Maybe this is, you know, thinking this is kind of dumb to get wrapped around the axle on it, but... I think the alternative is, is something worse. The alternative being we allow someone else to make decisions of, well, you can see this, but you can't see that. It's like my old friend Jim Lorenz used to explain to me, you know, censorship is, is like pregnancy. You either are or you aren't. 
Either you are making the choices of what you will choose to examine and what you will choose to consider, or somebody else is making those choices for you. Now, of course, you can, you can take your choices to extreme limits, but it still doesn't change the fact. You're the one who needs to be making those choices, not somebody who, however well-intended, feels like they have the scoop and this is the way it ought to be and everybody should be, you know, chanting in unison. What an interesting time we live in. I mean, if you want to think for yourself, if you want to own your own worldview, you have to work for it. You have to be willing to risk, you know, being seen as an outsider or being on the margins of society because you're not, uh, you know, marching in lockstep ideologically with what those who supposedly know best think you should be thinking. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. A quick shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com. If you are looking for a way to convert your money into skill, as in skill at arms, ammunition is the way to do it. And it's also kind of a happy coincidence. Ammunition is a very good store of value. It's a highly barterable good. If I were interested in, for instance, uh, you know, stockpiling a commodity that would hold its value, in other words, was a good hedge against inflation, and yet uh, wasn't uh, quite as costly as, say, gold and silver... Yeah, I think lead, copper, and brass would be one of the things I'd be looking at. HSL Ammo can help you there. High quality, new, and remanufactured ammunition. Check out the link I put in my show notes at uh, thebrianheidshow.com for hslammo.com. Well, I know uh, there there's still some just diehard people who believe that anybody who questioned you know, the COVID response is, uh, what's the word they like to, oh, it's the, they like to call it COVID deniers. You COVID deniers, you are the ones who, you know, went out there and defied public health authorities when they said to do this and do that. I guess uh, they haven't been paying too close of attention. If they, if they had, they'd have to notice that, hey, did you see where the science changed again? And now the CDC is saying what uh, those of us who are COVID deniers have been saying for a long time. Basically, your natural immunity protects you if you've had covid that natural immunity will will help you as much as as if you are vaccinated in some cases perhaps more it's just curious well but now the cdc is saying this we can agree with it because it's coming from someone in authority yes that is exactly how authoritarians think nothing is legitimate unless it comes from someone in authority but rather than dismiss people as covid deniers I think that's just kind of an excuse to avoid addressing legitimate concerns about things like personal autonomy as well as uh, informed consent. Got a great article here from Donald Boudreaux. Why I signed the Great Barrington Declaration. This is a really, really great explanation. He says, upon returning to my computer this afternoon, I discovered an irate email from the mother of a George Mason University freshman. Here's my response to her. Ms. L, I'm dismayed to learn from your email that because you've just discovered that I endorse the Great Barrington Declaration, you're demanding that your son transfer out of my upcoming Econ 103 course. That decision obviously is for you and your son to make. You should advise your son to do what you think best. 
but you took time to write to accuse me of intellectual incompetence. So I'll take a moment to defend myself. Because you offer no objection to the Great Barrington Declaration other than it is so anti-science, anti-social, and anti-humane, a competent professor should loudly critique it. He says, I challenge you to actually read the Declaration and write back to me with your specific objections. Identify particular passages that you believe are so outrageous that no intelligent person can assent to them. He says, the central message of the Great Barrington Declaration is its call for focused protection. Do you object to this message? Do you you object to the advice that protection be focused on those groups that we know, and that we knew at least as early as March of 2020, are especially vulnerable to COVID, while leaving the great majority of humankind who are not especially at risk to continue life as normal? And if you do object, what about this advice is so outrageous that it marks anyone who supports it as being unfit to teach an introductory course in economics. Now, he says, for the record, I foresee no occasion for me in the course of mine that your son will will now not take to mention the Great Barrington Declaration. In other words, this isn't even a part of his economic course. Then he asks, or do you object to the Great Barrington Declaration's implicit yet economically sound and relevant understanding that spending resources willy-nilly to protect everyone, regardless of risk profile, from exposure to COVID is to waste resources, even if the only goal is to reduce illness and death from COVID. After all, in many cases, resources used to protect to protect uh, low-risk persons from COVID are resources no longer available to protect high-risk persons from COVID. As all competent economists would say, Reallocating resources from where they have low impact to where they have higher impact results in these resources having more impact. Do you not believe that this outcome, that is getting from the same number of resources, greater defense against illness and death, is desirable? That's a good question. He says, or perhaps you object to the Great Barrington Declaration's warning that the massive and unprecedented suspension of economic and social life is destined to have horrendous unintended consequences, including, although not limited to, worse non-COVID health outcomes for swaths of people much broader than those who are especially vulnerable to COVID. Now, he says, I close by noting that regardless of your objections to the Great Barrington Declaration or to the merits of those objections, the Great Barrington Declaration's advice is not original. As Great Barrington Declaration co-author Jay Bhattacharya explains in his excellent podcast from this past May, the Declaration merely reminded humanity of what was, until early 2020, the consensus among public health officials, including those at the World Health Organization, of the best means of dealing with respiratory pandemics. All the Great Barrington Declaration did really was advise that long-standing consensus be regained and followed. Now, he says, I'm genuinely sorry that your son will not be in my course. I recommend that he enroll in the section taught by my colleague, Tom Rustisi, who's an excellent professor from whom your son will learn much. I think he's pretty magnanimous in how he addresses this, but I'm, I'm appreciative of the fact that he can, can point out, you know, the, this knee-jerk reaction that people have, ah, you're a COVID denier, usually doesn't come from a place of being well-informed. It comes from a place of you are bucking the orthodoxy or in some way you are not in in harmony with the orthodoxy and therefore I have a duty to, to fly off the handle and to you know bring you to heel 
or punish you for your wrong think. If you haven't read the Great Barrington Declaration for yourself, really, you probably should. In fact, he, he links in this article, so if you want to click on it, you can, you can actually read it for yourself. The funny thing about it is, what was being advocated by the signers of the Great Barrington Declaration has actually been, it's panned out to the point where now there's a lot of health officials who feel safe. And well, okay, yeah, this is, this is what, uh, what needs to happen. And you got a few that are gaslighting people. Well, that's what I recommended all along. I was never for for lockdowns. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to get people upset. But I hope that there is at least a, a line in the sand, even a figurative line that you've just drawn in your heart that says, I will not go back to the kind of stuff that we had to put up with a couple of years ago. I think we really need to draw a hard line and hold that line. Because obviously the people who are in positions of authority found, well, you know, as long as people are scared enough, you know, if we tell them to do this, you mask up and you stand this far apart and follow those arrows and shut your business down and so forth, they'll do it. And perhaps the saddest part of the whole affair was we found that uh, there were people out there who entered law enforcement in in good faith. I'm going to make a difference in my community. I'm going to serve and protect. Who went out there and arrested people for showing up at the park with their kids or not wearing a mask or some other silliness, sitting in their car watching the sunset. Sorry, but you're away from home. Here's your ticket. I mean, that's pretty serious stuff. You want to talk about people who abandoned their consciences and, and were willing to just Follow orders, ma'am. I'm just following orders. I don't use the term heel clickers lightly, but that's what we saw was there were plenty of heel clickers who were willing to do whatever they were ordered to do. How do you prevent something like this from happening again? You know, I know the the unpopular way to approach this is you just got to be willing to say no. I kind of like Andy Frizzella's approach. I can't use the same language that Andy uses, but he's like, if more people would have said, you know, F no, I'm not going to go along with this. From the very beginning, it would have nipped this in the bud. But a lot of people, myself included, went along to a point to where, well, we don't know, you know, we're, we're not sure what's going to happen. And sadly, by the time a lot of us figured out that, uh, you know what, this really isn't about keeping us safe. This is more about seeing who is going to submit and who isn't. So many people were doing it that it, it really became a mass formation psychosis that unfortunately persists in some people still to this day. I still believe the best advice for those who are opening their eyes and realizing, okay, we were bilked. We were scammed. We were absolutely manipulated into doing things that were against our better judgment. Be gentle with those individuals, even if they were complete jerks, and even if they were the ones cheering, oh, I hope you get COVID and die, you know, when you wouldn't get the vaccine. They're waking up, and it's a painful process. But let's, uh, let's not treat them like the enemy. The enemy is still the ignorance of those who will do whatever they're told because someone in authority said this is what I have to do again the most important antidote though that all of us should be administering in our lives is working daily on that ability to think clearly and independently 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for joining us as we revel in wrong think on this program. And a quick thank you to lifesavingfood.com. I appreciate Kendall Whiting for the great job he does in running his company, lifesavingfood.com. It's food storage, yes, as well as other emergency preparedness supplies. You should check it out, man. I mean, there's there are solar options if you want to, you know, keep your, your phone charged up or otherwise have, have the ability to cook your food regardless of what's going on. You find some great ideas. That's lifesavingfood.com. So I alluded to this in the last segment. I'm, I'm going to expand on this a little bit more. One of the frustrating things to me is there are things that I feel like should be pretty obvious to people right now. Like, uh, like what's at stake? As I'm looking at the I zoom back, you know, to the 20,000 foot view and I see the bigger picture. And it's very clear to me that uh, we are in a time of extraordinary peril to our freedom. I think that our freedom is is really hanging in the balance. And some people sense this, but for some reason, there there are people who, I, I think they're good people, but they, they just are looking for any reason to believe. You know, I'd like David French in the first segment is, is a good example. Well, let's wait and see if this FBI thing was on the up and up. And if it isn't, well, then those who are responsible should be held accountable. But uh, they look for any reason to keep grasping to believe that, well, you know, this is this is how it should be and this is all good. Okay, I don't have that luxury. And and if your eyes are open, frankly, you don't have that luxury either. Well, I'm grateful for people like Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute who can explain why freedom itself is gravely in peril. He says, the FBI has raided Donald Trump's home in Florida and opened a private safe hanging around for hours looking for classified material that might be there. Now, they were likely looking for items that Trump believed he had declassified. The president can do this with anything, but is still holding in his possession. Top officials of the National Archives, the Department of Justice, and the FBI believed otherwise and thus sought the search warrant. Now, if the New York Times is correct, then this is really about state secrets. Trump wanted them public. Others inside the deep state machinery disagreed. But he says the scene in Mar-a-Lago, Florida, gives rise to images from societies without law and constitutions, places where regimes are merely juntas seeking plunder and revenge. In this case, the problem is complicated by a mass administrative state apparatus that lives outside the democratic process. Aides to President Biden, reports the Times, said they were stunned by the development and learned of it from Twitter. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says that's likely true, but it gives rise to the more fundamental question, who is actually running government? If we didn't before realize the extent of the multivariate crisis gathering all around us, now is the time. It's a time for analysis and understanding. It's also the time to make a decision concerning what we are all going to do about it. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, look, even those of us who are not fans of Trump, he says, I wrote one of the first articles from 2015 warning against his ideological leanings, which later became a full book. He says, uh, you know, we still see the deeper implications. The betting odds favor him for the presidency in 2024. Someone somewhere wants to make this impossible. 
So all the forces of the administrative state, the actual rulers of this country, have coalesced around crushing him and his legacy, Soviet-like. In the background of all this is the real struggle that will define American politics for years to come. Two weeks before he left office in 2020, Trump issued an executive order that would have put a major dent in the power of the administrative state in this country, taking the first steps toward returning government to the people after a century in which it gradually slipped away. And he says, in some people's view, this is intolerable. Trump, for all of his failings, was uh, among which was greenlighting the lockdowns, which started this social and economic crisis, has become over time a symbol of resistance. The raiding of his private home sends a message about who is in charge. It's a warning for everyone, an intimidation tactic. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, we are used to this, but we should not become so. Biden has once again declared a national emergency in the name of virus control. Such a declaration effectively enshrines the permanent bureaucracy to rule the country at all levels in whatever ways they desire, at least until courts stop them. The extension of the declaration hardly made the news. And so Jeffrey Tucker asks, have we forgotten what normalcy is? I mean, it was only three years ago. Yeah, there were political arguments and enormous problems, but it still felt like a nation of laws with government subject to the people. Already, there was something in the air in mid-March 2020, something that suggested that everything was changed. Governments all over the world dared to do the unthinkable, partly under the influence that it happened in the U.S. and under a Republican administration. Countless millions found themselves locked in their homes, Churches were forcibly closed, businesses and schools too. You know the story. It was not only a sweeping use of state power without precedent, it foreshadowed dark times ahead. And here we are, two and a half years later, and the state is on the march in ways we never imagined possible three years ago. The rating of Trump's home is but a sign and a symbol. None of our homes are safe and haven't been for years now. Even, in the land in the, even now in the land of the free, people are being pressured to accept the shot or get fired. We all have unvaccinated friends who want to visit with us but cannot because the U.S. government blocks them. Our health authorities have only expressed regret in one area, and that is for not having locked down more. And they're creating a bureaucratic machinery to make doing so next time more ferocious and better enforced. And all of this is taking place without a scrap of evidence that any of it makes any scientific and or medical sense. The scientists who resist have been canceled. Only one view is permitted to ascend. Everyone with doubt is being marginalized and silenced. Congress itself became addicted to authorizing trillions in spending. And they keep doing it again and again. This adds pressure on the Federal Reserve to enter the markets and buy the resulting debt with freshly printed money just as rates are being pushed up to clean, its, to clean up its disastrous balance sheet. No one knows, least of all the Fed, how long this grueling inflation will continue, but regardless, the damage is done. And from here he gets into describing the labor markets, wages and salaries, and why they're following and so forth. He says, looking at the broad trends, there's no mistaking what's happening. American prosperity is fundamentally threatened. Jeffrey Tucker says the relationship between freedom and prosperity is one of the most well-established truths in economic literature, so it shouldn't be surprising that both of them decline in tandem. But of course, complain too much and you'll find yourself without a voice on social media. The tech companies developed a deep relationship with the administrative state over the last two years, corresponding with each other, sharing insights, making enemies lists, and of course, silencing dissidents of all sorts. 
So clearly the lockdowns did not achieve the goal as the virus came and gradually become endemic, regardless of external interventions, including mass vaccination mandates. What they did do was test society's tolerance for despotism. And tragically, they got away with it all, much more easily than most of us might have expected. He says, even now, even though the ruling class has never been more popular or less popular, rather, with the public, too many have adapted to the new normal. For many people, this is by necessity. After all, what can anyone really do when freedom is slipping away and even core functioning of civilization like safe streets or vibrant cities or class mobility is something we can no longer take for granted? Well, he says, let history record that lockdowns triggered this, all of it. Yes, there were problems before, but they seemed within the realm of fixable. There appeared to be in the old days, three years ago, some relationship between public opinion and regime priorities. That was blown away with lockdowns. Now it is no longer clear whether and to what extent public opinion matters at all to the masters and commanders of our societies. They are leading us to ever greater crises and we feel powerless to do anything about it. In the most incredible of ironies, it was Trump himself, now targeted for destruction by the bureaucrats he sought to control, who enabled this in the dreadful year of 2020. Realizing but never admitting his error, he flipped in the other direction late in the season, arguing for open, openness and normalcy, but it was too late. He already lost control, as Deborah Burks's book makes clear. The deep state that he had loathed needed to prove its hegemony, and this raid on his own home underscores that point. Now, one read of history is that such times lead inexorably to the forward march of tyranny. And certainly interwar political history teaches us this. The crisis in Germany began in an economic crisis that cried out for a strong man, but Germany was hardly alone in this. The same inexorable push toward centralization and against freedom took place the world over in these horrible years. Spain, Italy, France, China, and the U.S., Now, Jeff Tucker says these are not the most terrifying times in history, but they are among the most terrifying in our lifetimes in the West. Where are the parties and movements that defend freedom as a first principle? He says our prayer today should be that freedom for above all else is is what should uh, prevail. A society and a world in which powerful elites don't rule the rest of us and forever fight amongst themselves for the right to do so. Would the people deployed as fodder in their struggles while hope and prosperity slip ever deeper into memory? This is why it's so essential that we have to know who we are and what we stand for. And freedom's not a bad thing to stand for, you know. This is The Brian Hyde Show.